In this week's episode, once again, we are diving into the wonderful, controversial world of Ayn Rand. So once again, I have to clarify that I do not agree with everything that Ayn Rand said, and I know that a lot of her beliefs are very problematic. But the reason why I wanted to do another episode on this topic is to dig deeper into her philosophy of music, which is still, in my opinion, very, very fascinating. Welcome to Everyone's Special and No One Is, a podcast about obscure, misunderstood, and or controversial topics related to music. My name is Martin Chazelle, and for the first time ever, we have two guests joining the podcast. One guest has been on before, one guest is new. Um, Our guests are Tanner Kulpitz, who is a bass guitarist who works in the field of metallurgy, and Kate Schumann, who is a musician who works in the field of civil engineering. So welcome, Tanner and Kids. Hi, thanks for having us. Yeah. Um, Tanner, you've been here before. We talked about Ayn Rand and kind of like went down that whole whole rabbit hole. But um, Kate is new. So Kate, do you want to just talk like a little bit about your background in a nutshell? Sure, yeah. I started playing piano in second grade and I took formal lessons pretty much through high school. Uh, middle school, I started um, in my middle school's uh, band playing baritone, and I eventually transitioned to play tuba throughout high school. Um, yeah, so it's a little bit of like my musical background, and like you said, I work as a civil engineer, and that's it's been pretty fun for the last few months so far. That's awesome. What uh, my my understanding of civil engineering is very fuzzy. Can you go into a little more detail on that? Yeah, so I work in mostly like residential development. So that means like designing like neighborhoods and the streets um, and like the different lots that like houses go on. But generally, civil engineers can build buildings and bridges. They can um, do mining and transportation studies to figure out like the best way to put like roads in. Um, they work in like environmental engineering and like water resources. They can pretty much work in any industry. Yeah. Wow. That sounds super exciting, actually. <laughs> Holy cow. Never had a civil engineer on the podcast before. Um, do you do you identify equally with music and civil engineering? Or is is do you feel closer to one or the other? Or what's what's that like? I think with just graduating from college a few months ago, I would say that engineering has been, played a bigger role in my life lately because that's basically what I've been doing for the last five years, um, studying to become an engineer. Sure. Um, so I've had a little bit less time than I've been used to to, to really dive into like music and, and being a musician. Yeah, no, I totally, totally relate to that. It's like, ah, getting to getting to the the jobs and it's like yeah yeah totally understand but um yeah that's awesome i also took piano lessons long throughout like elementary school middle school beginning of high school um oh, awesome yeah yeah i had classical suzuki lessons if that means anything to you and then i <laughs> transitioned into more like jazz slash pop lessons but um 
yeah, yeah. Piano is a great instrument, and I don't have one here at the house that I just moved into a few months ago. But anyway, <laughs> I digress. <laughs> um, what what we kind of wanted to talk about today for the podcast is is turning back the the pages on Anne Rand. Um, I know me and Tanner talked quite a bit extensively about Anne Rand the last time, but it was sort of more just like our our thoughts on how reading Atlas Shrugged and some of her other books have like shaped our lives. And we didn't, we kind of like touched a little bit on the overlap between um, Ayn Rand and music philosophy, but we didn't really get into it that much. And I think um, on this episode, I kind of just wanted to uh, go into more detail on what Anne Rand thinks about music and how that potentially relates to the experience of creating music and thinking about music and listening to music. Um, so we're going to be getting into her book, The Romantic Manifesto, which Tanner and I have both read. Um, and we're going to try to sort of like, like, like it, it can, it can get a little bit, <laughs> It can get a little bit complex, definitely not as complex as some other philosophers out there, but um, I thought it would be a really fun, a really interesting exercise for me and Tanner, who are both like, you know, who spent so many, so many hours reading these books to try and like communicate these things and go through and um, try to help someone else understand it who is not necessarily in that world. And Kate said, you, you said previously that you were down for the challenge. So <laughs> I really, <laughs> really appreciate that. Um, I don't know. Is there anything, Tanner, that you want to say about the difference between this episode and the one that we did before? Yeah, well, I think in the first one we did in the beginning, we were like, we're going to talk about Ayn Rand in relation to music and really get into that. And we Definitely touched on it a little bit, but re-listening to that episode, um, I was like, oh, man, we didn't talk about any of the stuff we <laughs> meant to. because, it, and, and I think it was still good. I think it provided a probably a really good background to maybe coming into this episode. But if, if it sounds like our idea is to talk about the same thing, I, I think we that's uh, not, not what's going to be happening. I think it's going to be quite a yeah. bit different. Um, and... And, and yeah, just really focus on what she thinks about art and music in particular. Um, and, and it really, because while we were talking about how her sort of literature has a profound impact on your personal growth, I think that it just as much as on personal growth, uh, it will have an impact on how you, you know, approach creating art, but then also uh, interpreting other people's art. Like we kind of mentioned it with some music that maybe had influenced, uh, been influenced by her. But like when you're really deep into, say, the Ayn Rand uh, philosophy of art and music, like you, the sort of the the knife that you bring to judge other music is very different, I think, than yes. without her looking at it. And I don't think we really touched on that too much, besides the. Maybe the excerpt that you read in that previous yeah. <laughs> episode about, that had influenced your music, but you know we didn't go into that uh, as much right. as we wanted to. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. I just read that one um, 
one little quote about the music composer Natalie Shrug, which then also came up on a more recent episode. And like that, that is not, that is just like the tip of the iceberg of what Anne, well, I don't know. It's not like she's written a lot about music. Basically, all she has to say about music from a nonfiction perspective is contained within about 15 pages of her book, The Romantic Manifesto, which is about 200 pages long overall. So it's like a, a tiny, tiny segment of the things that Ayn Rand talks about. But as um, these these topics were very influential for me at making music, and um, even if I don't agree 100% with it now. You know, I've had a lot of years since I first picked up this book to think about it. I think it's still just an interesting exercise to go through and like be what really is is she saying on this topic. And yeah, I think that's good. <laughs> um one of one of Anne Rand's whole things is that you can't just talk about a certain philosophical idea without considering the broader context. So, like, if you just quote, like, a little bit of Aristotle, for instance, you're, you're totally missing the, the broader, like, sort of conceptual framework in which Aristotle is writing. And likewise with Anne Rand, like, if you're just taking, like, little tiny excerpts here and there, you're potentially missing out on the bigger picture. So I thought that rather than jumping right into the music stuff, we could talk more generally about her philosophy on the creative arts, um, and specifically this this idea of sense of life, which she um, sort of is an idea that she has about how that works, and just diving into that, and then getting more detailed onto her specific thoughts on music as a form of art. Does that sound good? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Heck yeah. So to the best of my knowledge, sense of life is something that is unique to Anne Rand, that it's a, uh, an idea that she sort of created or invented or discovered. Um, and it's basically referring to... she When she defines it, she has all these like big, big words, and I'm not even going to bother quoting her definition of it because it would just be so esoteric that <laughs> it just kind of like misses the point, I think. But uh, based on, I did, before recording this, go back and reread these chapters, and the sense of life is basically something that everyone has. It describes a psychological um, thing in your head. It's sort of the relationship between psychology and beliefs, or like psychology and philosophy, um, and it's how you, um, how your subconscious beliefs affect the way you react to different events and or circumstances in your life, in particular, how you react to art. Um, so obviously, all of us react to different types of music, different types of movies, different types of books in very different ways. The same book can be very boring to one person and very exciting to another person. And and Ran is saying the the difference between something being boring to one person or exciting to another is that we have different personalities and our different personalities are defined by our sense of life, which is that sort of underlying subconscious philosophy that you have um, that if you find some things to be important to you, like love, friendship, um, happiness, then you'll you'll react in some ways to other things. But if you 
Um, I don't know. I, I think I think it would be helpful to get into excerpts too, because I was just about to like roughly paraphrase something, which I think Anne Rand herself says a lot better. Um, yes. Do you think I'm on the right track, Tanner? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was. I was just as you were saying that. I was like, this is a perfect time for a couple um, of these excerpts because she puts it in a very good way. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Hello, this is Martin from the future. I just wanted to clarify before we start getting into these excerpts that Anne Rand's style of writing is very, very male-centric. So when talking about a hypothetical person, she will often refer to them as a man and use he-him pronouns. And when, for instance, talking about the ideal person, instead of saying just ideal person, she'll say the ideal man. And it's I don't know why she does it, and it's definitely problematic, but you have to understand that this book was written around 50 years ago, and it is a very different time now. Anyway, I just wanted to acknowledge that. So, back to your regularly scheduled podcast. I I have on page 27 of the Romantic Manifesto, this is in the chapter on art and sense of life, Um, She says, An artist, as for instance the sculptors of ancient Greece, who presents man as a godlike figure, is aware of the fact that men may be crippled or diseased or helpless, but he regards these conditions as accidental, as irrelevant to the essential nature of man, and he presents a figure embodying strength, beauty, intelligence, self-confidence as man's proper natural state. So when I when I read that paragraph, I think just of the statue of David, just as a classic example of that, as a Greek statue that sort of fits those ideals that she's talking about. Um, and then she goes on to say, an artist, as for instance, the sculptures of the Middle Ages, who presents man as a deformed monstrosity, is aware of the fact that there are men who are healthy, happy, or confident, but he regards these conditions as accidental or illusory, as irrelevant to man's essential nature, and presents a tortured figure embodying pain, ugliness, terror, as man's proper natural state. Um, So when I read that, I think more of like, I don't know, more primitive looking statues, I guess. Um, I'm not, I'm not sure. But I think, I think that kind of illustrates the the just the basic the core concept of sense of life if you um it, it's sort of like this this dichotomy and later in the in the chapter she does um acknowledge that there's a lot more than just those two basic <laughs> types there's there's a lot more nuance and um in between but yeah um yeah uh, I, I was looking at actually excerpts from the same two pages right around what you said, um, starting with, you know, man's sense of life provides him with the integrated sum of his metaphysical abstractions. Art uh, concretizes them and allows him to perceive, to experience their immediate reality. And skip down a bit, says, an artist does not fake reality, he stylizes it. Uh, yep. Everything included in a work of art, from theme to subject to brushstroke or adjective, acquires metaphysical significance by the mere fact of being included, of being important enough to include. Yeah, so 
just basically, um, I mean, metaphysics is the the philosophy of what is real, of what exists. So if something has metaphysical significance, that means that um, on an existential level, uh, you view it as something that is important, that in a work of art, sticking with the example of sculpture, like um, this particular type of person is important, and we want to portray that because it's important to your own view of existence if that <laughs> i don't know now now i yeah. feel like we're getting oh. we're getting deep and in the weeds um kate how are how are you doing so far <laughs> um it it definitely takes a little bit of of thought to follow a little bit of this um the examples are definitely helping though to kind of pick up on on what she's saying and how you guys are interpreting it yeah I, I think the first couple paragraphs of this chapter are provide a really good visual. No, if yeah, go for it. Uh, yeah, so the the very beginning of this chapter kicks off with, um, if one saw in real life a beautiful woman wearing an exquisite evening gown uh, with a cold sore on her lips, the blemish would mean nothing but a minor affliction, and one would ignore it. But a painting of such a woman would be a corrupt, obscenely vicious attack on man, on beauty, on all values, and one would experience a feeling of immense disgust and indignation at the artist. And then she says, uh, there are also those who would feel something like approval and who would belong to the same moral category as the artist. And, And I think this is a good sort of illustration of her approach to, you know, if you present human beings as what's important to include are these sort of, you know, what would in real life be say a minor blemish blemish or, or like in the sculpture example, like, you know, the artist is aware of, uh, disease. The artist is aware of, uh, you know, say negative conditions or, or less ideal conditions, but they don't see that as the essence of what makes a person a, a person, you know, it's, you know, does the artist look at, uh, the the I'd, I'd say sort of really like yeah the positive traits or does it look yeah. at uh does it do they view humanity in this positive kind of innately good light versus the whole um the approach that you know human beings are inherently bad or or inherently sinful and low creatures that are you know vile and gross and you know, and, and, and sort of having that sense of life as, you know, my blank slate is a low view of man versus my blank slate is a high and kind of idealized, uh, view of humanity. Yeah. And, uh, and then that, you know, will translate to, you know, like in, in music, is it, um, I want to say just simple versus complex because that's, it's more to it than that. Yeah, but yeah. I, I, maybe we're getting ahead of ourselves there, but yeah, just uh, like, in the portrayal of things that seem might be easy to look at as insignificant to the art, especially if you're not kind of on the lookout for it when you're looking at a, a piece of art or watching a movie or something. When Anne Rand's looking at that art, it is something as minor as I, I'm sure she would say, you know, a wrinkled T-shirt in a painting. But that's <laughs> saying that you know this person is a uh, a slob versus straight lines, you know, tightly tucked in or something. Yeah. Um. Yeah. And and so yeah, like when when we're looking at it, try, when we're trying to look at it through the Anne Rand lens, it is through a very 
very detail oriented as in the smallest details can tell us whether or not, uh, you know, this artist is a complete garbage person or a <laughs> great, like kind of, to kind of, you know, call back to our previous episode where we talk about Anne Rand really throws people in one group or the other, yeah. like the in group or the, the group that is just evil and wants <laughs> to destroy humanity. And, and yes. so if you're an artist, the smallest blemish can throw you into that group yeah. under her, her strict lens, you know? Right, right. Um, and that, that to this day is my, my biggest um, complaint with Anne Rand's style of writing and her philosophies is that everything is us versus them and everything is the, the rational men, the men of the intellect versus the slobs, the brutes, the irrational mystics. Uh, she has all sorts of pet names to give the other group. Um, but but I think if we see beyond that, I still think that the philosophy does definitely have, um, you know, its merits. Because all she's saying is that when you're making a work of art, be it a music piece, a song, a book, whatever, a painting, um, you have a choice over everything that you include in it. You know? So it's like, if you're just walking around, waking up in the morning, and it's like, ah, oh, got some acne breaking out on my face today. It's like, okay, fine. Well, you might not have direct control over that. But if you're painting uh, if, if you're painting on a canvas a picture of a face, you can choose whether or not to paint acne on that face. And if you do, then it's like, oh, this ugly blemish. It's like, ah, oh, that's um, Anne Rand would say that you think that ugliness is the the key essential factor of humanity because art is supposed to portray things that are existentially important. Yeah, like if you, like you said, if you wake up and you have some acne on your face, you know, do you view it as a uh, a temporary setback to what you want your face to look like, or is it is it now your entire view of yourself as I'm like this acne ridden, <laughs> you know, like then you have this negative view of yourself, and I think her, yeah, her her approach is definitely like you know you have these say I'd say yeah like uh, appearance setbacks or something. But do you focus on that as your defining trait? No, like, yeah, so nobody likes gonna... to wake up with acne. But you don't, you don't, and and sometimes you know it is it's hard if 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 you know if you're especially if somebody's struggling with appearance or sort of anxiety. You know it's it's hard to if you wake up in the in the morning and you have you know, that in the mirror, it's like, oh, I gotta, you know, so I gotta go to school with this. And all you think about when you're on the bus is, is that, and, you know, people going to notice it, you know, look that, but, but I think kind of with reading Anne Rand, you look at it and be like, no, like, you know, this, this isn't who I am. This is just, this is just a minor little blemish that I'm going to get through. But, you know, then there's other artists who are trying to make you think that that is the most important part. And those are the artists that present man as, as having these permanent blemishes. And, and if, so then if you subscribe to that, then when you wake up with things like that, are you going to have a more negative view of yourself and have that carry it with you throughout the day versus, I don't this know, is like rising above it. it. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, totally. Um, um, Which so, is good for me in high school because I, I had a lot of acne. So. <laughs> so from what I'm gathering from this is like 
how an artist portrays a person is basically how they portray like themselves and, and humanity either positively or negatively based off of like the detail and care that they put into um, giving them traits that are generally considered, I'd say in our culture as like positive um, looking good, you know um, like kind of almost like put looks put together in a sense, that's they're portrayed as like positive in Ayn Rand's eyes. Yes, and, and I, I think too, it's like you know, in a, in a painting or a sculpture, you're not necessarily you're not probably going to have a lot of words to help describe what the people are supposed to be. Like, if you want to portray uh, a virtuous person, you know, you, you, unless the artist is maybe being interviewed about it, like, how are they going to portray a virtuous person? Even if, you know, it's not just, oh, they have to, you have to look like conventionally attractive, but as I know that's some, uh, another critique of, of her work is all the good characters are portrayed as these very <laughs> sort of conventionally attractive characters and the bad guys are always like ugly dudes <laughs> that are balding prematurely and hunched over and, and you're like, yeah, so, you know, she just cuts people in appearance classes and it's like, well, the way that she's, I, I think that she's trying to convey it as like you would if you were a sculptor or a painter and you, you know, you have somebody who's the good guy has these positive traits in and out, you know, and it's like an all around, and it's not, yeah, in real life, we know that everybody doesn't always look, you know, super conventionally attractive. That doesn't mean that they're not a good person. But when you're doing this selective recreation of reality as an artist, what do you focus on? If they're a good person, you focus on their positive traits. And that's kind of like when we interact with people in our own lives. If you really, if you like somebody, you tend to focus on their positive attributes and you, you know, you think of them in a more, uh, positive and probably a more, uh, attractive light than if you didn't like them, then, you know, they could be, say very conventionally attractive and you'd be like repulsed by their face. It's sort of trying to convey that feeling, that emotional response that's tied into uh, actual human interaction. You can't do that in art with uh, something that, you know, you're not actually interacting with like you would a human being, but you can convey that sort of repulsion as you would feel if you were interacting in person with somebody that you didn't like. Yeah. So, I, I just want to like add um it, we we've been talking about a lot about just like outward appearance and because the the example from the romantic manifesto that we gave is a woman with a sore on her lips or whatever and that um it's like if we're talking strictly about paintings or in literature and physical descriptions of characters then that's sort of like Anne Rand's all about focusing on positive traits but it's of course much much broader than just the the physical attributes. Like, for instance, um, Anne Rand very much wants to write about heroes, about good people who are doing good things that are smart and productive and caring and, um, you know, are generally on the right track. And uh, she would view a story about a main character who's like a burglar or a murderer as like, oh, that's, that's not a, I don't know. <laughs> uh, 
that 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 presents a completely different view of a sense of life if your main character the person who you're supposed to be rooting for is like a bad person basically yeah yeah and she goes into that i think quite a bit in this book um in the essays that uh, start talking about film and like the film of the day where this was early 60s and a lot of popular movies were shifting into that you know anti-hero worship yeah. and and uh you know the main character is this uh i don't know the person that you're rooting for yeah is sort of this criminal who's going against the system but in a lot of cases maybe the only reason why we don't like the system is because the main character also doesn't like them and we don't really <laughs> you know he's the bad guy but he's the good guy and it's sort of that uh, you know idealizing that versus a protagonist that is just you know a honest and true and uh bright and you know yeah that's a traditionally the the good guy where where a lot of the art was shifting in this time to kind of treating that in a more corny light and and saying like well these characters aren't you know i'm not say not cool enough for our new film yeah i think just just to like summarize so Ayn Rand's all about if you include anything in a work of art, then it means that you think it's important to include. So if you're including good people, attractive people, uh, that means that you think those qualities are important. And if you do the opposite, then it's not. And then there's also like a whole continuum of in between with that. Are we are we good so far, Kate? Are you good? I think so. Um, in my head, I guess coming from like a, a cultural class that I took kind of thinking about it. Like if you look at another culture's art, you can see what that culture values and what's important to that culture. And so I'm kind of seeing Anne Rand's perspective as what a specific artist creates is important or that artist values um, enough to make it. And so just thinking of it in the kind of in the cultural perspective, I think has helped me a lot to kind of yeah. see her her perspective on on artists and and what they make. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, 100%. Cool. Um I think uh I have I have one more excerpt from the Sense of Life chapter that I think sort of bridges the gap between this discussion and the discussion specifically about music. Um so this is on page uh 32 uh she's talking about basically okay we've talked about sort of psychologically how different things that people view as important affects the art that they make or how they react to art that others have made but now let's talk about specifically like like judging works of art like how do you know if a painting is a good painting or not how do you you know like there's movie reviews talking about movies being good or not good like from a philosophical perspective how do you go about like like what is the fundamental um criteria for evaluating different works of art and so she says now a word of warning about the criteria of aesthetic judgment A sense of life is the source of art, but it is not the sole qualification of an artist or an aesthetician. And it is not a criterion of aesthetic judgment. Emotions are not tools of cognition. Aesthetics is a branch of philosophy, and just as a philosopher does not approach any other branch of science with his feelings or emotions, 
as his criteria for judgment, so he cannot do it in the field of aesthetics. A sense of life is not sufficient uh, for professional equipment. An aesthetician, ah, these words are hard to say, all of these big words, uh, (laughs) as well as any man who attempts to evaluate artworks must be guided by more than an emotion. Um, So basically, she's just saying that even if your your sense of life, which is just subconsciously determining how, like, what you feel about a work of art, even if you're like, oh, I loved that movie or I loved that song, um, just that that feeling in itself is not enough to be able to say, oh, I love it and therefore it is a good movie. You know, if you want to say that a movie is good, you have to talk about more than just how you felt about it. You need to talk about the plot and the characters and how they work together, you know, getting more detailed and more objective than just, Oh, I liked it. If that makes sense. Um, Yes. I I think that that's a very important distinction that I didn't really think about too much before reading her stuff about it. Like, you know, you do the whole, I like this movie and occasionally maybe a movie comes up where there's something about it that you didn't really enjoy it, but it had some, you know, you could tell it was a good movie, but it, it was sort of that weird, like, contradicting feeling watching it or something where it's like, I don't like it, but it's good. I don't really know yeah. how to talk, you know, how to say it. Um, I, I right on those same pages, a couple excerpts that I want to read quick. Yeah, um, it. it actually starts right where yours ended. Um, she says the fact that one agrees or disagrees with an artist's philosophy is irrelevant to an aesthetic appraisal of his work qua art. One does not have to agree with an artist nor even to, a uh, nor even to enjoy him in order to evaluate his work. Um, and then on the next page, skip over some stuff. And then we got, um, since art is a philosophical composite, it is not a contradiction to say, this is a great work of art, but I don't like it. Provided one defines the exact meaning of that statement. The first part refers to a purely aesthetic appraisal. The second to a deeper philosophical level, which includes more than aesthetic values. And uh, I think it's really a fun exercise to then go through and either listen to some music or, or, you know, watch a movie and try to separate the emotional response from the, you know, what do I think about these characters as if they were, you know, what as the people they're portrayed as, you know, like some of the most entertaining characters are just rotten people, but you really like <laughs> watching them and say, okay, but now this take a step further is there something that the writer of the movie is sort of saying about this character? Like, why is, why are they constructed in this way? And I feel it gets pretty cumbersome very fast, I think, but it is a really important distinction to separate. Yeah. The emotional response versus a, you know, evaluation of the art compared to your sense of life. Yeah. So maybe this is oversimplifying it, but I guess from what I'm hearing and like I like to make kind of these comparisons, it's almost like what I imagine like a teacher that has to evaluate students writing or like art or their like music teacher. And, you know, the teacher might not personally think it's something that they like, but they're there to say, well, it's still good. It's still like a good piece of work. It's just, you know, maybe personally they don't, they don't like it or they don't agree with it kind of thing. And being able to provide the, the structured, like 
like evaluation almost. Yeah, that's a really good example of this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like like a kid a kid can be a crappy artist because they're a kid or something, but then you evaluate. That's a great yeah, that's a, a great way to summarize this, I think. Yeah, and sticking sticking with that example, like um teachers when they're giving grades, they have to be able to judge like students' writing uh without just like, oh well, I I you know I don't like romance stories. And so if kids are writing romance stories, I'm going to give them a bad grade. It's like, no, (laughs) that's not, (laughs) that's not fair. Um, and, and it can also work, uh, vice versa, but, but yeah, yeah. I think, um, this whole idea that it is just like subjectivity versus objectivity, Uh, If something is subjective, then it depends on each individual person on their own opinion. But objectivity is about facts of looking at a piece of writing or a movie or a song and being like, okay, objectively, there are these characters, they did these things in the movies, and we can form um, some sort of an objective valuation of the movie. Like, this is literally a good movie because of these reasons. You know, one of of the... um, one of the things that is the most important to Anne Rand, I feel like, is her insistence that things can be understood on a scientific, philosophical, objective level. And this whole idea that the arts are inherently based on opinion, based on a pure inspiration, based on feeling, she's very much against that idea because for her, Everything can be understood and everything can be broken down into um, the the different ways. Like, why is this movie causing you to feel a certain way? Oh, well, if you look at your um, the kinds of movies that you've watched in the past and the sorts of things that you've liked in those, and generally what you find to be important to you, then you can start to understand why you feel a certain way about it. And on a whole separate level, you can start to understand, like, even if I don't like this movie, what are what are the what are the ways what are the details that the director and writer decided to include that made it a really really well thought out well constructed good film? You know, yeah, yeah. I mean, I I think I have a pretty good understanding. I mean, enough to if I were to go read this, I would be able to keep in the back of my head to kind of help me interpret what she's trying to to say and what points she's trying to make. Yeah, perfect. I'm glad. Nice. But just the first time going through this book, I remember fighting this, the sort of the, the putting of the people in camps right away. I, um, and so I don't know if, if somebody's listening to this and it is maybe immediately off putting in that, like from that sense, I would, I would say, uh, Give it some time, maybe. I, I, I don't know. I, I just I remember this was a big thing that I was like fighting her with, and I, I'm struggling to remember why now because it seems to make so much more sense now. But yeah, yeah. I mean, um, with anything, there. You know, we we've talked about how like beliefs change over time, mm-hmm. and you you can read something and not not agree with everything, but you can still get something out of it. And yeah. I think that's really really important. And just to like reiterate that I still don't like the way that Anne Rand puts people into camps. I think that was one of the things that caused a lot of the uh, 
stress in my own life as I tried to then apply that to real life and think of other people, other other songwriters and musicians as, oh, well, this person wrote a really uh, sad song about this horrible situation that they went through, and they thought that that was like existentially important enough to put into a song and therefore I'm going to judge them as a songwriter because they wrote this really sad song and I'm better than that. I know that as a songwriter my duty is to portray these super positive idealistic situations and therefore um those other people they they're they're on the wrong path you know what i'm saying where <laughs> oh yeah that that brings back a memory and i don't know i don't know if you will want to cut this out of the show or not but i just remember we were at like a i think it was like a, a love sequence house show or something and uh i was talking to you and I don't know if it was like a girl that you kind of thought was cute or oh, no. oh, or, no. or what, but you went you went to go talk to her, and then like you came back a couple minutes later, and you were like, you know, uh, like I don't remember what you said, but it was like you were like no longer interested, right? And I was like, why this? It's like, well, she said that she likes Twenty One Pilots. Uh- and I was like, well, yeah, that's everybody here likes 20. I feel like that, like that was the time when they were huge and like every, especially I feel like every girl at our school was like favorite <laughs> band was 20, like not to overgeneralize, but okay, yeah. they were huge. And then I was like, what do you mean? Like, how does that like, it's like, well, they have a song called stressed out glorifying being stressed out. Like <laughs> I can't be interested in somebody who like looks at that as a, you know, a good, a good piece. I, I, I love yes. that's another one of my little Martin stories that I love because I was like, yeah, gotta respect that. The man will not budge. <laughs> oh man, I love that story. I think it's great. Because <laughs> like, and it just came back because you were like, all right, I'm gonna go talk to her, and then just like five minutes later, it was just like she likes. They have a song called "Stressed Out." <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was like, respect. Oh. <laughs> but um. But 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 yeah, I, I do think to uh, also kind of bring this back to the last episode, uh, or not the last episode, but the episode where we were talking about Anne Rand a couple months ago. Um, while it is definitely um, off-putting, I think a lot of her language with, uh, especially kind of on the judgment of others, or but you know, and and it's. It's something you, you know, I don't, I never want to say it's something you have to look past because I do, when I, when I try to look at it from like taking a couple steps back, I do think it's very important that she makes these really, uh, rather strict or harsh distinctions so that when you as an individual reading her books are making your own takeaway from it, like it's, it's not a book you can, you know, it's not work that you can read and just, Kind of, I mean, I guess you could just, you know, believe, take everything on face value type of, but you know, if you're approaching it with your, you know, trying to get your own take on it or, or, you know, your own, say your own sense of life compared with hers, like it is, I think it's very, very helpful that she has this very distinct, you know, rather abrupt way of categorizing everything because then if you want to build your own uh, approach to it, kind of using her as sort of the say the sounding board or something and whether or not your 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 beliefs are disagreeing with her it's never this vague oh is it 
you know, my following Anne Rand's line of thinking or not? It's like, no, okay, I disagree with her here. Why do I disagree with her here? Because of these reasons, and I don't like her line of thought here, where if it was much, if, if she didn't have those um, more, you know, those very aggressive boundaries, I think you'd be, it'd be a lot more difficult to um, make distinctions of what is your set of beliefs and what is hers. Because, you, you know, you don't have to line up with Anne Rand's set of beliefs to get a lot of value from the work. But it is... I, you know, just, I'm, I feel like when I'm reading it, I'm, you know, I'm used, you're used to, uh, maybe not having to argue with an author of something as much as you might have to as you're working <laughs> through some of these works. But I think it's very valuable that it's there. So. Yeah. yeah. Like, I, I totally agree. Um, just Anne Rand really writes in a lot of absolutes. Uh, a lot of mm-hmm. very strong statements, and that makes it so much easier to be like, okay, well, I agree with this point, I disagree with this point, moving on, <laughs> you know, yeah. as opposed to writing yeah. more generally or poetically, um, it, it would be potentially harder to make a distinction there. Um, yeah, and I think it's easy to get turned off by that, but I do want to reiterate that, you know, to look at it from a, a different way where it's, you don't have to agree with it. But I think a lot of times, like, you know, when you suggest to somebody to read Anne Rand and they, they get to that, that section of the writing and they're like, what, you know, what are you, you trying to either indoctrinate me with these like <laughs> harsh views, you know, it's like, you no, know, but it's, yeah. It's, you have to, you have to bring, like we, like we said in the other episode, it's not exactly a book I pick up when I'm just like, Oh, I want to relax and reread a book that, you know, was that I really liked, you know, back in the day, like just, you know, kick back and, you know, have some leisurely read. Like you you definitely, (laughs) at least for me, like I gotta, I gotta really, I can't be just doing it like as I'm falling asleep, you know, I gotta, you gotta kind of be on. Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely more of like a focusing situation, um, requires lots of mental effort. Um, yeah. Um, I think, I'd like to um, to talk about the music chapter now. So, well, I, I'm referring to it as the music chapter, but really it's sort of... Um, th- this book is structured. She's talking about sort of the fundamentals of art and like her view on Sense of Life, which we already talked about. Then she talks more generally about the comparisons and differences between the different forms of art. So getting more into detail on how do we differentiate... Uh, painting versus writing versus um, sculpture versus architecture. And she kind of, in this chapter, which is called Art and Cognition, um, she she talks about those those different similarities and differences for the first five pages. And then she talks about music for the next 15 pages, which becomes the bulk of the chapter. So it is kind of um, more or less the, the music chapter but it's just really interesting to me because Anne Rand is not a musician. She was a novelist and a philosopher and a writer, but she, I don't think, um, had very much experience with music at all. So when she's talking about things like, oh yeah, the major scale versus the minor scale, harmony versus melody, like, like I get it that she's done just enough research to basically kind of kind of get it but still like some of the some of the ways that she talks about specific 
musical elements are like, yeah, okay, you, you're you're not really a musician, but that's fine. That's fine. Um, it's just like music poses this big, big problem for her and her beliefs because, like I said earlier, she it's very important for her to be able to understand and analyze and objectively discuss anything, um, whether it's art or not. But music is very, very hard to do that with because music is so emotional. And the way that she describes it, um, I'm going to kind of paraphrase because it's, it's a little bit, um, a little bit wordy in the way that um, she does. But basically, she's like, with, with any other type of art other than music, um, just for an easy example, um, going back to like, painting. So you see a painting of a person and like you register that with, oh, that's a person. Oh, that's a person standing in a field. Oh, it's a beautiful landscape. And then you start to feel an emotion as a result of looking at this thing, which you see, which you understand to be a person standing in a field. Um, But music, on the other hand, you don't hear music and immediately have an understanding of what like the piece of music is about um and and it's it's really clear here that in this chapter we're talking about instrumental music not um music with lyrics we're just talking about like pure music by itself that's what andran is writing about she would consider like music with lyrics to be oh like a combination of two different art forms a combination of like comp instrumental composition plus um lyrics or poetry or more broadly literature, you know? So if you're just listening to a piece of instrumental music, you have absolutely no way of knowing what it's quote unquote about just by listening to it. But you immediately faster than you can even, um, consciously analyze it. You, you immediately feel, uh, an emotion or a lack of emotion (laughs) when you're listening to a piece of instrumental music. It's like, oh, this is exciting. This is fun. This is upbeat. Or, oh, this is like more of like, uh, more of a relaxing vibe, you know, like lo-fi hip hop or something. I'm sure that did not exist by the time she was writing this book, but (laughs) you know, um, so basically Anne Rand is saying, uh, music is experienced first as an emotion, and then secondarily you start to think, oh, well, this is a really peaceful thing. Um, I would maybe, this this piece, this song makes me feel like I would if I was just like lounging on a lazy Sunday afternoon, or if I was, it's a really intense piece of music, and it's making me feel like I want to get up and start running, or climbing a mountain, or something. It's basically like, you you feel the emotion first, versus with like the painting, or the book, or whatever other form of art you see it, you understand what's going on in the scene, and then you feel something. Does does this make sense, Kate? Am I, am I breaking it down okay? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I think especially, like, with the musical background, like, that definitely makes sense that, you know, when you first hear a piece or even play a piece, if you haven't done any, like, research about it or the person that wrote it, you know, the, the context is pretty much up to your interpretation and how you feel, um, you know, unless, of course, you, you've read about the piece or you know who wrote it and the context that they, they wrote it in. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And... um 
on on that on that note, like the context in which you wrote it in, um, Anne Rand talks about like the the composer's intent versus like the the music itself, I guess. So she says, um, uh, music cannot tell a story. It cannot deal with concretes like specific information. Um, it cannot convey a specific existential phenomenon, such as a peaceful countryside or a stormy sea. The theme of a composition entitled Spring Song is not spring, but the emotions which spring evoked in the composer. So basically the composer was like, I want to write a, a piece about springtime, and so I'm going to convey this emotion in the context of the song. Anyway, uh, going back to the book, um, Anne Rand says, even concepts which intellectually belong to a complex level of abstraction, such as peace, revolution, religion, are too specific, too concrete to be expressed in music. All that music can do with, with such themes is convey the emotions of serenity or defiance or exaltation. The, the composition St. Francis Walking on the Waters was inspired by a specific legend, but what it conveys is a passionately dedicated struggle and triumph. By whom and in the name of what is for each individual listener to supply. So basically, the person who wrote that may have been thinking about that specific legend, but um, when you're listening to that, especially if you don't know what the composition is called, if you're just in an auditorium and the symphony is playing that, you may not, um, you may just feel a certain way and interpret the meaning of that in your own way based on the emotions that it causes you to feel, regardless of what the intent of the composer was. Are we, are we following? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think so. I mean, I'm just curious, does Anne Rand ever say anything about what it means for the person who's listening to the music and the emotions that they feel, or maybe like sometimes I hear people talk about like you have images in your head sometimes, like when you're listening to music because you have your own storyline or or picture in your head about what's happening and your own emotions. Does she ever mention like the emotions you feel based on specific types of music? Um, kind of show who you are as a person, or is that just something that she doesn't deal with? Um, I think. I think generally, yes. She, um, I think this whole chapter kind of touches on that idea of how listening to music evokes different images for you and different feelings and how that relates to your personality and your sense of yourself. I don't know, Tanner, can you help me out on that? Yeah. Um, she is sort of like getting at, at that where, you know, if you have a piece of music that is is having that sort of that higher image of humanity, like we were talking about earlier with with her approach to sculpture, say the the sculptor that was like the more Middle Ages one, where it's presenting man as this uh, weak and sick, you know, human. If they hear a composition that has that brighter, you know, big sound, are they going to be listening to it and yeah, thinking that it's if any, if, if, if nothing else, at least thinking that it's a stupid song, like, is this a stupid, corny, you know, people aren't like this. And, you know, why is it trying to, uh, put on this facade of, of positivity or, um, of over, you know, the sound of overcoming obstacles, you know, I'm, I'm trying to ex think of terms for like, you know, some, some music that you hear and it sounds like triumphant, you know, we're, we're winning type, type music. 
would somebody that thinks that, uh, you know, life is all this life is suffering and we're just losing everything. And that's what being a human is, is, is being suffering. And then you die and, and <laughs> the world is going to beat you down. You know, if they hear this triumphant piece, I would say, uh, and Rand would probably be expecting them to really not like this. You know, they want to hear something melancholy and dissident, something that has lots of garbled noise in it, something that is chaotic in a, and in a haphazard and, and, you know, loose way. And, um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, um, I think, I think you did a really great job. Of describing that, I, I remember like when I was really like the Anne Rand fanatical stage, right? Like it wasn't the only music that I was listening to, but probably ninety percent of the music I was listening to was like uh, it needs to all be you know Rush and Dream Theater, and yeah. we need to have twenty rock. minute songs that yeah. are very musically complex. And if people don't like listening to songs that are super long and have long instrumental things is it's obviously because uh you know their sense of life is they want to view humanity as something you know so stupid you can only do three you know three repetitive minutes like no we need to have progressive metal everywhere <laughs> and multiple time signatures and everything else is yes. dumb like <laughs> that's yes. like the cartoony my cartoony image of myself for like a couple at least a few months of being really just like yeah. everything needs to be complex which is probably <laughs> yeah misinterpreting some definitely when i look back on it now it's like all right you know there's value in a lot of other stuff and a lot of the even at that time a lot of my favorite music was Still not like that, but there was definitely right. a while where like all that I was listening to is like, it's, it's gotta, you know, because I'm a person who likes, you know, to, likes to overcome challenges and to, to be, you know, uh, bright eyed and like bright eyed, bushy tail, like ready for the day. Like, so the only music that I can listen to that properly, uh, supports that sense of life is music that is overcoming the challenge of playing something difficult and it needs to be difficult and hard and <laughs> to, you know, at the expense yeah. it is better to have a song that is less enjoyable to listen to than one that is challenging to play you know like that that kind of just goofy approach um yeah. but that's part of the fun of getting of of going through the Ayn rand phases right um yeah, and, and I definitely did a lot of the same. Like, oh, the music that I'm that I'm listening to. Except I did it for um <laughs> for for EDM music. Music that I'm listening to is EDM, and it has these like these calm verses that build up into these ecstatic bass drops and that ecstatic bass drop is the part that's like the the expression of heroism and people who don't like listening to bass drops are oh well they they don't <laughs> they don't really know what's going on i don't know yeah. kate or, how does this um, sound from an outsider perspective is this just absurd or what I mean, I think the closest thing I can relate from my life, like, this is definitely not the same thing, but, like, almost, like, really intense, I don't want to say fandom, but, like, you know, like, you, you're you a fan of the work, and you're really, like, you guys sound like you really took it to heart and, like, took it very seriously, not that you don't right now, but, like, you know, kind of, like, in the the ages, you know, of like high school I'd say it sounds yeah. like you guys were in high school like where everybody's trying to figure out who they are and and what their values are it sounds like you guys really like took this to heart and and really tried to work this into your life which 
I mean, I, I don't think it's a bad thing because, you know, everybody, everybody definitely has, has their, uh, the people and stuff that influence them into, to try to, I don't know, try to figure out who they are and stuff like it. Yeah. It's very, very interesting. Yeah. My example is just going to be like a super big Harry yeah. Potter fanatic here, Ooh. you know, which, <laughs> which I mean, like, that's obviously not the same thing, you know, cause I didn't, I didn't live like a, <laughs> like Harry Potter at all and stuff, <laughs> but that's yeah that's the closest i got was was that the example that you did martin last episode where um you know compared to like harry potter you can be a huge fan but you don't walk around thinking you can cast spells (laughs) you know but but when you get really into this and, and yeah like uh like you're pointing out kate with us really putting i think it was we were certainly put you put a lot more like weightiness into things that you know, when I look back, it's like, oh, it seems so small as, you know, my decision of what song to listen to while I wait for the school bus. But then I look at it back, it's like, well, no, it's not a small decision because that that says everything about you. <laughs> you know, just like putting like way too much yeah. overthinking and like, well, you know, if I don't choose to listen to music that has the, you know, conveys the proper way of being, then how can I really say that I am living consistently with my for, beliefs? For any, any experience where you really, really like a certain song or a certain book or a, a certain movie, like it's, it's so easy to be in your own head about it and like not to, 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 to not understand like why don't other people like this as much as I do um obviously you find the people who are um like within that same community like uh obviously a huge community around the world of Harry Potter and fans of Harry Potter um and with Ann Rand obviously you and me Tanner are like <laughs> super in that but like to to an outsider sometimes it can be like uh just the this this sort of general sense of disconnect like uh from the outside perspective it's like why is that so important to you <laughs> and on the inside perspective looking at the outsiders it's like oh they they just they just don't understand um yes. and for for Anne Rand connecting it back to this chapter she really thinks that um generally you can with with most forms of art, with like movies, literature, painting, etc., you can convey what you actually see, what's literally going on in the uh, work of art objectively, and you can communicate um, your your preferences and why you think this is a really good work of art. Um, but with music, it's a little bit different. Um, all right, we're on page forty six. No objectively valid criteria of aesthetic judgment is possible in the field of music. There are certain technical criteria dealing mainly with the complexity of harmonic structures, but there are no criteria for identifying the content, i.e. the emotional meaning of a given piece of music, and thus demonstrating the aesthetic objectivity of a given response. So basically she's saying music is not objective because of the way it's based on emotions. And she goes on, um, at present, our understanding of music is confined to the gathering of material, i.e. to the level of descriptive observations. It's like, oh, this song is in a major key and it has these four chord progressions and the melody goes up this way and down this way. Um, 
And anyway, she says, until it is brought to the stage of conceptualization, meaning understanding, we have to treat musical tastes or preferences as a subjective manner, not in the metaphysical, but in the epistemological sense, here we go with the big words, <laughs> not in the sense that these preferences are, in fact, causeless and arbitrary, but in the sense that we do not know their cause. No one, therefore, can claim the objective superiority of his choices over the choices of others. Where no objective proof is available, it's every man for himself, and only for himself. So, so in, in this quote, she's just basically saying, I, I give up. Music is not to be understood. <laughs> you, can't, you can't talk about it objectively apart from like obviously dissecting the music theory but you can't use music theory you can't use the harmonic and melodic structures of a song to say therefore it's a good song you know um because her whole idea of the way that music works is it causes these emotions which cause us to understand the meaning of a piece again talking strictly about instrumental music um to to understand the meaning in a certain way but because we don't understand that psychological mechanism of how and why certain musical choices cause a certain feeling um there there's there's no saying this this piece is better than this piece because of xyz reasons it's just like oh i like i i like listening to that that lo-fi hip-hop beat and i can't explain why i like it or why it's pleasing to me but it's really nice and i'm going to listen to it and you may not you may not like it you may find lo-fi hip-hop to be very very boring and repetitive and uninteresting but um it's it's hard to say well Anne rand would say it's impossible to say uh one way or the other that this is a good piece of music or this is a bad piece of music does that jive with your understanding of this chapter tanner yeah yeah i I think so and i think um from there i i I think kind of transitioning from all right we look at sort of our interpreting music and evaluating music trying to you know base it on your principles or your aesthetic values but you know kind of flip it to all right, so if we kind of, like you said, Anne Rand kind of saying, I give up, you know, we can't really look at all of it in the same way as other types of art. I think it's also, um, or, or besides that, you know, you, you can use it a lot for yourself and uh, to sort of help you get a better picture of maybe what your actual value judgments are. Like, um, as an exercise, you know, if you're listening to some different pieces of instrumental music and just trying to, you know, limit all distractions and all other stimuli, what kind of emotions, what kind of, besides emotions, you know, does it make you think of certain memories? Does it make you construct sort of a, um, a scene in your head and what's going on? And then based on what you're kind of constructing in your head from this, uh, just purely instrumental music, what are your, you know, what's important to you about that? What are your evaluations of the scene that you're creating from this, you know, musical source? And then to kind of use that to, you know, it, I, we kind of, we started talking about this last time. And I, I think it's something that I always want to bring up with Ayn Rand, but it's the, um, you know, importance of deliberately trying to create a cohesive set of, um, beliefs and individual 
uh, philosophy, sense of life, like try, having everything be consistent, as consistent as you can within yourself. Um, and a good, you know, to do that, uh, some of the things, you know, that maybe will help strengthen that or help you look at it from a purely individual approach and not being influenced by, um, you know, another writer, you know, you know, reading some other writing and getting all those other, but just purely what is my response and what do I think about my response? Okay. What does that tell me about what I think is important? If this is, you know, to every song that I enjoy, do I picture similar things in my head? Is there the same, you know, reoccurring themes that are standing out to me as being very positive or very negative? And so what is this, how does this translate to, you say, broader concepts that I use in my, you know, more concrete day-to-day life? How do these abstract um, visualizations, how do I turn them into something more actionable? And using music as sort of the, yeah, like the starting point to... Uh, you know, when you, do, when you want to evaluate your own, uh, premises, but you don't want to do it necessarily from like a more direct form of, uh, or say like a more like objective, uh, I guess form of art, like just a piece of literature where you're getting the exact story, you know, laid out to you by an author or a movie. And then you evaluate it from the movie. Like there's a lot more freedom in your interpretation of music yeah. and how you respond and then trying to pull up from that, you know, more, um, I guess more, you know, uh, man, kind of getting off. No, yeah, but, you can kind of you learn know what I mean? about. Like you're kind of using it as a sort of a starting palette and then turning it into, all right, so this is purely what I think about that, you know, that is important to me and what I value, what is good. And yeah, using it as a tool almost. Right. Yeah, using it as a tool to understand yourself and your values and your own inner philosophy by taking that time to really think about how do I feel about this music and why, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, to, to a deeper level of does it make me happy or sad or just, oh, do I like it or not like it? Does it make me, you know, taking it, you know, because that's, I think, maybe the more immediate responses that we all have right away. And, and lots of times when I'm listening to music, I don't necessarily think that much further. You know, I'm driving to work or I'm washing dishes and I just turn on some music and it's kind of there, but it's mostly in the background and I'm not really, you know, focusing on how it makes me feel. It's just sort of a supplemental thing. But instead of just doing that sort of normal listening, yeah, turning it into this more focused approach and trying to use it to get a fresh perspective on what, what, you know, how am I feeling right now? And, and evaluating yourself with it. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's just a good, good, good basis to start to dig into some of those things. Um, yeah. Yeah. Kate, how are you feeling? <laughs> I'm really feeling like uh, my first step into evaluating myself is to look at the music that I listen to, you know, and then, you know, and after that, I feel like it'd be looking at other people's works of art that isn't musical, but just, you know, the art or the literature, the movies, and then be able to almost kind of try to interpret their sense of of life and stuff. But I feel like you almost have to understand your own first is what I'm gathering. Yeah. 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 And again, without being 
too um, judgmental <laughs> of of other people because as both me and Tanner have talked about, we in our fanatic Ayn Rand phases, we were like, oh, well, other people just don't get it and they're not, don't have the same <laughs> valiant heroic sense of life as we do because they don't listen yeah. to progressive metal and or EDM music with bass drums. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm the only one that understands, you know, that whole approach. Um, um, but I do, but having a little period of that, I think does provide a very good base. Like it might be a little, I don't want to say embarrassing looking back on, but you know, you're like, okay, I, you know, you have some growth afterwards, but it's a pretty valuable, like, because just in, yeah, like in a stack, because it's something I need to do again now that I've kind of been away from it for a few years, but just to really, like, like Kate said, before you can really start interpreting a lot of this art on a deeper level, it definitely is good to have a, a deeper understanding of yourself. And, uh, yeah. you know, you got to start somewhere and maybe you go too far in the Anoran fanatical direction one time, <laughs> but then you, you build it back into your own thing. Right. But right. having the sort of, you know, man, now I'm very excited to start trying to do this again. Yes. I, I miss, I miss walking <laughs> around and being like, ah, you know, they, <laughs> they don't <Yeah>. get it. <laughs> I don't know. Like, like I think thinking in these, terms in the way that Ayn Rand's written these chapters, it can be helpful in some ways, but it can also be sort of harmful and narrow-minded in others because sometimes you just need to mix up what you're listening to for the sake of variety, not because you're in a certain uh, philosophical frame of mind or or whatnot. Like, you just need to... It's like, oh, I've listened to this album 20 times in the past month. It's time to listen to something different, you know? Yeah, and, it, and it definitely relating back to the previous episode we did, kind of when we were wrapping up our discussion on, on, that, on that episode, uh, saying, you know, while these books were really good and helpful and they really, you know, we got a lot out of them and a lot of development and growth and there's so much to think about. Not everything needs to be this level of, you know, not every piece of literature needs to bring this level of personal, uh, you know, development or not everything needs to have the weightiness of say some of her novels on you or, or, you know, that you can even though there's value in it, you can still just relax and, you know, read a story much like while there's so much value you can get out of really diving into music. That's not to say that there's also a lot of value in just being able to sit back and enjoy it or just yeah. put it on and do the dishes, you know, yeah, yeah, it exactly. all kind of ties back in. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Kate, where where are you at at this point? I mean, I think I think it's been a great discussion. I've I've learned a lot, of, I guess, about Anne Rand, and and it's helped being able to kind of like ask the questions and ask if like my comparisons to things that maybe relate more to my life um, to try to understand what what points she's trying to get across has definitely helped me, and I, I hope it helps all of the listeners too to be able to to kind of dissect. Um, her thoughts a bit more and maybe be inspired to pick up one of her books and and try it for themselves yeah yeah totally um and of, of course that being said 
this is just one way of thinking about music. Like, I'm not saying that this book, The Romantic Manifesto by Ayn Rand, is inherently better or worse than another book that presents a different way of thinking about music. But I think overall, it's just like taking the time to really think about um, what do I listen to? How does that reflect on my values and my choices? And how can we think about this more deeply than, oh, I'm just putting on a song because, you know, without, without questioning it. I think, I think generally philosophy is about breaking down things that are easy to take for granted on the surface, but by thinking about it on a a little more analytical level, it can lead you to discover new and interesting things and make different choices. And I think that's um, good and valuable. Yeah, I, I think it's a good way of kind of showing that you know, music selection and, and, and what you, what your responses are to music are, you know, it's, it's just another one of those, um, when we talk about the, you know, every decision that you make and every action you do builds up the person who you are, right. You know, and it, to kind of think about things that might sometimes seem as trivial and, and inconsequential as, you know, whether or not I like a particular song is you just skip to the next song. Right. But, you know, there's, you know, uh, these sort of decisions are still part of that building up a building block of your personality. Um, whether even, even if you're not particularly a person who cares a ton about music, like, you know, there's still a emotional response that you have. And much like your response to any other piece of art, it's a very, it can, you know, it's, it's, it is what you make out of it as far as getting value from it. But if you do want to dive into evaluating your, yourself, you know, it, it, music also does provide, um, it does provide a way to do part of that. Um, yeah, yeah I, I, yeah, totally. <laughs> and, and, and that's, and that's one thing where, you know, regardless of your views on Anne Rand, you know, this book in particular, it, I really think it's, it's probably, I'd say of one of the more fun reads, not just of Anne Rand, but of it, cause it, you know, you, it really makes you think about music and movies and, and yeah, you kind of have to, if you want to take the, the ideas presented in the book and try to apply them and go watch a movie, you know, you might have to, think a little more than you usually do when you watch a movie, but it's kind of fun to approach it in that more, uh, you know, searching for more uh, meaning or what does it say about me or what does it actually say about this artist than I, than I typically care to think about when I'm watching a movie. Like it does, it, it's all, it provides you, at least when I'm reading it, you know, it, it gives you these sort of ideas that, you know, when you read her books about, you know, uh, essays about economics or, you know, all these kind of, you know, talking about all these laws that are going into place and how they're super destructive to <laughs> the whole concept of humanity and all this. It's like, yeah, this is applicable, but yeah, you know, it's not the same as just, you know, get taking some of the ideas and then watching a movie and think, you know what I mean? Like it's kind of got a, <laughs> a more immediate way to, to use it and think about yourself with it. Um, yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah, it's a really good way of putting it. Um, cool. Well, this has been great. Thank you both for being on the podcast and taking the time this morning to go through these things. Uh, Kate, I hope we didn't get too bogged down in in the rabbit hole and the the big big. I don't know. Um, I I mean, yeah. I I think this was just good to sort of like bridge the gaps. Um, and could serve as a bit of an introduction, not necessarily a sales pitch for Ayn Rand, but, um, yeah, thank you guys so much. I said that again, I'm repeating myself, but, (laughs) um, Kate, now are you, does, has this prompted you to want to read Ayn Rand or has this prompted you to not you know, is there a certain... <laughs> I would say I'm more open to the idea of picking up one of one of her books, I think, more so than before. Okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Success. <laughs> <Woo>! <laughs> one of us. One of us. <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> yeah. Oh. Um, yeah, you know, um, at the moment, I don't have anything to promote. Um, no, I, I don't either. But yeah, thanks for having us. Yeah, it's been fun. fun. Yeah. Yeah. Um Kate, what do you see it? What was that? What what do you see? What do you see? Am I supposed to am I supposed <laughs> to what? <laughs> what is there anything that you see at this present moment? What? <laughs> Well, I'm like I'm in Tanner's living room. Is that what I'm supposed to? Sure. Yeah. 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 Sure. Oh man. Man, guess you didn't listen to the whole other episode. I didn't get to the end. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. What do you What do you see in Tanner's living room? Oh man, I see a lot of aluminum books from his work and Wii games and DVDs and CDs and. Nice. A lot of white walls. <laughs> solid, solid, solid. Uh, Tanner, what do you see? I see I've got this like uh, stuffed bird perched up on top of uh, the DVD shelf that I like looking at that I got from my seventh grade science teacher. Nice. That's what I see. Nice. What do you see, Martin? I see... Uh, well, I see the Romantic Manifesto, which is on my desk, but I mean, that's just what we've been talking about the whole time. I see my toenails, which need to be trimmed. That's kind of gross. Excellent. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I, good visual. That, that says a lot about your, uh, your view of life, that the thing that you see is the nails that need to be trimmed. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's what's and, important. And the, the, the mere fact of including it in an audio artistic medium, such as a podcast, acquires metaphysical significance of being included and therefore uh, reflects on my own... Sense of life. Whatever. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Perfect example. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Um, yeah. I think, uh, yeah. Cool. Well, um, yeah, we'll, we'll stay on the phone a bit, but we'll, we'll stop the recording again. Thank you guys so much. Let's all say goodbye to the listeners. Bye. 
Bye. Thanks for listening with us. Bye. Thanks for coming along on this journey. (laughs) Okay. Until next time.